Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Josh Hodges. I'm your host of Online with an Architect, and I'm very happy today to have James Worth with me. Welcome, James. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. Very good. Can you give us a quick intro, who you are and what your background is? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm James, and I've had uh, about 20-odd years' experience as a consultant, um, you know, helping customers through their various IT challenges and solving problems for them. It started started off working in Adelaide in South Australia and, you know, trying to work with larger customers, naturally moved over to the East Coast and uh, ended up working at an IBM partner with you, actually, as you would know, um, for a while. And uh, then eventually into the professional services at VMware and and then uh, spent a bit of time in the office of the CTO working on the kind of uh, the new projects that we're ushering in for customers, um, the sort of things that you see from VMware flings. Um, you know, when, whenever you go on the website, you say, oh, there's a fling, that's a cool thing. You know, that's the kind of stuff that we're working on in the office of the CTO, figuring out what would make a good fling and then supporting the people to make that fling and make sure that it was actually useful. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. So throughout your, your journey, you actually completed your VCDX and, uh, you know, lucky for me that you were my study buddy throughout that process. <laughs> I certainly owe you uh, a lot of thanks for helping me through my journey. Um, can you tell us quickly about your VCDX journey? Yeah, well, obviously, uh, as you know, that might be part of the reason that we're sitting here talking today was because we uh, spent a lot of time together going through uh, our presentations and, uh, you know, trying to challenge each other with our decisions and, you know, uh, going through all of the different uh, scenarios that could possibly come up. So, um, yeah, it was, it was quite rewarding and challenging. Unfortunately, I had to put up with you for most of it, but, uh, you know, it seemed to, seemed to work out in the end. It certainly did, and uh, yeah, we both defended in uh, in Toronto in uh, 2012, I think it was, from memory. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was it was a big deal, and I I still wonder was it worth traveling halfway across the road, uh, world to go and do that defense? And I think um, it definitely was, but then over time, I sort of thought, oh, you know, could have waited a couple of months and. There was probably a panel in Singapore or something like that. It would have been a bit easier without all the jet lag and traveling 24 hours or whatever. But, you know, we were some of the first few, well, we, we, we within the first 100 people to go through the process. And so I didn't really know how it worked. And um, so it was about let's get in there and get it done as quickly as possible. And I'm glad that I did that. I actually ended up being uh, on the panel and being involved in or on panels and being involved in the process later on. So it was interesting to be uh, sitting on the other side of the desk and realizing what goes into it and probably the mistakes that I made or the over-preparation um, as a candidate. Yeah, well, I think that's the, the value of the journey, actually, is learning what you don't know, learning what you do know, and being able to plug those gaps. So I think as a panelist, it's the same thing. So a candidate's going to say something, and you might go, oh, actually, I didn't know that. And then even as a panelist, you, you'd be learning things. So. I certainly had that experience as an NPX panelist. Um, anytime someone defended NPX, uh, I was quite excited to be a panelist because every time I learned something, even if it was a very small thing, uh, it was actually a really good experience on the other side, as you say. Yeah, yeah. Being a panelist is not an easy job. 
you know, I mean, obviously the candidate's the one who's quite nervous and under pressure, but, uh, you know, you, you have to do your research to do a good job as a panelist as well. Yeah, that, that's true. Actually, funnily enough, I didn't feel any pressure as a candidate. I was nervous and, and all those things for sure, but there was no pressure. I was there, pass or fail, I, I do my job. As an NPX panelist, I felt a lot of pressure because someone has put all their time and effort into preparing and defending and you know, it's very important that, like you say, that I'm well-researched and I've read their design and I understand it very well so that I can give them every opportunity to have a good panel, a good experience and demonstrate their expertise. So to be honest, I was more nervous before being a panelist than I was as a candidate. <laughs> so that, that was quite uh, quite a weird feeling. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, it's an important job to make sure that the candidates have a good experience. I mean, they've Apart from the cost, uh, there's a lot of time and effort and, you know, time away from something else that they might like to be doing with their family or otherwise. So, um, yeah, definitely you have a, a, a very important responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that was a, it was great fun. Uh, so thanks again for being my study buddy and uh, definitely wouldn't have got through the process without you. So, uh, so thanks again. Um, so talk to me about end-to-end. Uh, -end. What is this uh, company you've joined? Yeah, well, you're probably the better person to answer that than me, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, it came at the right time for me. You know, I was looking for something new and uh, something with a bit more flexibility, and you seem to be offering that. Hopefully, we'll be able to, you know, solve some good, solve some interesting problems for some customers. Um, I happen to be based in Bangkok at the moment, so um, we've got that regional capability. Um, so yeah, I'm you know excited to be here and looking forward to a number of years of uh, important work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very lucky to have you on the team and uh, look forward to learning a lot from you and uh, and the, the broader team benefiting from your experience as well. So yeah. let's talk about some of the tech you're interested in at the moment. Uh, I know you've been doing some uh, some research and some some deep thinking about some certain products. Uh, what would you like to share with us today? Well, actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about what I was most interested in in the past and uh, why I most enjoyed my job first, and then uh, and then I'll sort of go into what I was doing today, if that's okay. Mm, yes, please go on. Yeah, so um, what I my journey kind of took me through being a Microsoft expert for a while, then looking at storage. So I was very concerned with resiliency, and then I got into uh, VMware. And so um, then SRM was obviously a natural fit for someone with a storage background. Mm -hmm. And those, I think I spent probably two years doing almost nothing but SRM engagements. So um, that means everything from helping customers choose the right storage, the, the, the right storage replication technology, whether that's you know, backed by the underlying storage array, uh, whether that's vSphere replication, um, choosing the right location to replicate their storage to. Um, that's the design end, all the way to the fun part, which is testing failovers at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, um, <laughs> sitting there with bleary-eyed people that don't want to be there trying to, trying to failover some VMs to another data site and uh, hope that they work at the other end. And uh, one, one of them in particular was uh, an interesting experience. I was in uh, KL, and we were there, uh, obviously, as you do when it's uh, 
disaster recovery test, uh, you know, a, an actual live disaster recovery test. We're doing it at about 12 midnight we started. And after we'd failed over, it, you know, it worked successfully. There was, luckily we were only doing a couple of EMs, um, not, not the whole data center. Mm-hmm. And during that, uh, after we'd failed over, we did some tests and yep, okay, everything's successful. And then we started seeing some drop packets on the network and then we had some communication difficulties and then we couldn't get to the other site anymore. And we're fiddling around for a while trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? What can, what can we do here? Have we made a mistake? And it turns out they had a WAN failure um, right in the middle of our disaster recovery test <laughs> just after we'd failed over. So we couldn't fail back like, because we'd turned up the VMs. They were, they were live. They were running. We tested them. And there was no way to fail back. Um, luck, very luckily, um, the v, we knew the VMs were up and they were operational. So they, we could get to them from the Internet. But we just couldn't get them back to their normal site. And, yeah, it, uh, it was very lucky that... Um, I didn't get the full details of how the WAN failure was resolved, but it was resolved relatively quickly. So we came back the next day and, and sold it back. It was on a weekend, so it wasn't a big deal. But, man, uh, during that, <laughs> that was quite a stressful time. And, of course, I was in KL, so initially everybody's all happy. And, oh, yeah, here we are. We've got our packets of chips and we're drinking coffee and Red Bulls and everything, and we're staying awake. And then all of a sudden everyone's stressed out and um, – you know, calling their managers and waking people up and, oh, what's going on? What do we do? And, of course, then they start um, speaking in um, Bahasa as well because they they were a bit stressed. And, of course, I don't really understand what they're saying apart from the English words that are in Bahasa that relate to IT. So, yeah, that was a, a very, very interesting um, experience. Um, but it worked out okay in the end. Yeah, fantastic. I certainly know that stress when a failure occurs in the middle of something and you always doubt yourself and you always think, oh, what have I done wrong? And when you ultimately discover it's something completely unrelated to what you're doing, uh, it's a bit of a sigh of relief because you know I personally prefer just to assume I've done the wrong thing and until there's evidence otherwise. And I think that's a great example of where you're sitting there in the middle of the night assuming you've done something wrong during a change. And uh, sure enough, it, it wasn't you at all. And uh the, the R scenario actually worked. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is the, the, one of the most stressful parts of that is trying to explain to a senior manager person who is also very stressed and has just been woken up and doesn't know what's going on and doesn't have any real technology um, experience or, uh, you know, doesn't have a great deal of knowledge and is getting stressed out and angry because something's not going well and trying to explain to them, okay, this is what it is. And they're like, how do you know it's that? Well, we've done these tests and then they don't understand the tests that you've done that prove your hypothesis. But eventually, you know, we, we got to the, got to the end um, of that one. But yeah, that, that was certainly quite challenging. So after spending a lot of time being the SRM guy um, and not just around Singapore, but then uh, within that time frame, I moved to Canada, and so I was working on a bunch of different SRM projects around North America as well. So had experience with basically one product, but all over the world. So that was really interesting and really fulfilling. Um, one other anecdote was um, a couple of times we've put in disaster recovery solutions, and then you never really hear much. You go, okay, we've ticked that box, but has it ever really helped in a disaster? And there was one in particular that I heard of um, that we did in Melbourne 
and and it was for a, a smaller company but an important company that ran big events and um, what we had heard was that there was a big hailstorm in Melbourne and it collapsed part of their roof and that happened to be right on top of where they had their racks. It wasn't a full data center because it was a smaller company. And uh, it, they were pulling the disks out of their servers and they were full of water. Like it was, it was a, an actual disaster. And fortunately, because a couple of months before, they said, well, let's put in a disaster recovery solution to our other office um, down the road. Um, they were able to recover from that. And they were up within half a day after having their data center completely destroyed by hail and thunderstorms and water and bits of roof falling on top of their service. So, um, yeah, that's a legitimate disaster. But, um, obviously you, you don't, yeah, obviously you don't hope that people have disasters, but, um, that was kind of cool to, to hear that the solution that we'd put in, um, basically enabled them to continue business, which mm. I mean, business continuity, that's where the name comes from, of course. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I remember from our time uh, at that IBM partner back in the early days, there was a customer who had three locations. Um, it was almost like a metro campus. And uh, they had three storage arrays and three vSphere clusters. And they had to decommission one of the server rooms, again, not a data center. Um, and I remember doing the migration of VMs with storage vMotion and normal vMotion um, from one of those data centers to another. So they could completely get rid of that data center. Uh, and all that, of course, was done online. Uh, there was dark fiber between the buildings and everything. So that was, you know, in the early 2010s. So, you know, quite a, an early deployment of effectively a stretch cluster um, environment. So that was uh, very cool. Yeah, these are the things that give you fulfillment, I think, in your career when you've actually, you know, you're working closely with a customer and achieved an objective for mm. them, uh, and you're, you're right in front of the customer. Um, unfortunately for me, I found that, uh, I mentioned before that I was working in the office of the CTO and working on the things that kind of became flings and became new features and new technologies. For me, I found, even though it was great working on new and interesting tech, I think I prefer working face-to-face -face with customers and helping them solve problems. I find that more fulfilling, you know, when you've, you've actually done something like like you explained there, where a customer wanted to decommission a data center and you had the architectural experience to help them build what they needed and help employ the technologies to get that done. So that's what I'm looking forward to doing uh, with you in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why we're, we're in the roles we're in because we love that, that customer interaction and delivering business outcomes and, you know, not just the technical side, but, you know, mapping the, the business to the technical and making sure we communicate to executives who are not technical um, how we're doing things, make sure they're, they, uh, you know, their trust in us is inspired and, uh, yeah, that we can measure those results. So I think, you yeah. know, there's a lot of architects who end up uh, in a non-technical position where they're not hands-on, um, whereas you and I have both, due to our passion for technology, maintained hands-on and that enterprise and solution architecture experience. So I think that's, uh, that's great because that's, uh, that's what we do now at end-to-end. -end. So that's really exciting. Yeah, and that's kind of what's led me to what I've been looking at now, which is um, new storage technologies, like mm -hmm. hyper-converged infrastructure. Um, so in particular, been doing some, well, I've been doing some reading into the Nutanix solution a little bit. I, there's, a, there's this blog by this guy, Odger, 
Codger something, something, <laughs> something, somebody Codgers. And uh, yeah, he, he writes a few articles about um, Nutanix. And so I've, I've read a few of those over the years, but um, uh, right now I'm focusing on vSAN. I've got uh, quite a, I'm quite interested in being able to use x86 servers, just general purpose servers to create resilient storage infrastructure. I think that's, that's quite interesting. And so that's where my research has been recently. Yeah, absolutely. I think HCI, obviously I joined Nutanix in 2013, I think it was. And uh, yeah, I love the HCI space. There's a lot of cool stuff and a lot of good developments over the years um, from VMware, from Nutanix and others. So yeah, talk to us about what you're uh, finding with vSAN at the moment. Well, it, it's interesting um, that it, it seemed like, and I was working at VMware at the time, uh, that the initial versions were um, shipped pretty quickly, um, potentially as a response to uh, Nutanix coming to market with uh, a new and interesting and innovative product. And uh, VMware probably wanted to get something out there that, um, I don't know, it, it, it didn't seem to have all of the features that you, that you might want. And even now, um, when you look at how things are configured and you look at uh, what technologies are available, it seems like there's, there's still some work to go. You know, they're, they're definitely on the right track um, with how the technology is proceeding, as, um, particularly with the new, um, the new architectural capability for uh, all flash. But um, yeah, it, uh, there's, there's some more work to be done, I think, to make it uh, fully uh, fully resilient, trustable solution that has all the capabilities that an old school storage array used to have. Mm, yeah, I think that's what uh, a lot of people still struggle with is trying to map the old storage technologies to what HCI is. Some of the features are different. Some of the features are, are now redundant. You don't need them. Uh, storage DRS is a good example. You, you need that with certain traditional storage and with HCI and vSAN, you don't really need that. So I think there's still some confusion in the market on how best to use HCI technology. Um, how to make it resilient is is certainly a huge gap um, and definitely a, a hot topic um, because business continuity is not just SRM, as you mentioned before, it's it's keeping production running in the event of maintenance or failures. Yeah, and running doesn't just mean turned on, it also means performing well too. I think, um, I, we were talking the other day, I'd mentioned um, uh, it, this was a traditional storage array, but it had kind of been maxed out. So we didn't have any hot spares or anything like that. Um, obviously due to the business wanting to get the most bang for their buck in terms of available storage. But when there was a problem with the RAID 5 array and a disk rebuild needed to be done, we found out that it didn't have enough IOPS to both serve its business function and rebuild the array at the same time. So um, we were, for business hours at least, we were running with the rebuild switched off, pulled the drive out um, because the business said, we, you know, we can't survive with it running that slowly. Um, mm. So we were really kind of running in a dangerous scenario there because the array had been um, not, not planned correctly for a rebuild scenario. It was planned correctly for doing business as usual, but when we got into that failure scenario and had to do a rebuild, 
um, it could no longer keep up with with uh, the demands. So mm. that's certainly and something that um, interested. Rising works, and it's not just like you say, business as usual. It's what happens during maintenance, or a failure, or a burst of demand, or, or anything like that. Replication, you know, anything like that. So. I think when people are sizing, it's very important to consider not just the, the front-end I.O. requirements, but also the back-end, i.e. the replication overheads or rebuild operations, maintenance operations, things like that. And it's not as obvious as, I guess, people of our experience uh, think it is uh, to everyone because they haven't had that experience that we've had. So, yeah, do you have any thoughts on, uh, on how people should be designing like HCI solutions? Well, I, I think you want to take into consideration those things that we talked about. I mean, for example, it's, it's all well and good to have a number of hosts and um, so that if one fails, you've still got enough capability to be able to run your services. Um, but if you don't have enough IOPS to rebuild and to reestablish availability um, once a failure occurs, you haven't really left yourself enough room um, to serve that purpose. So that, that's one of the things that I'm quite interested in. It's probably more of an art than a science, I would say, because you have to, you have to think of various scenarios and then try and make some estimation of what type of load that could place on remaining hardware if a, a host fails, for example, or multiple hosts fail. Um, yeah, so those are those are the things that I've been thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I like to do is put a failure scenario table into a design document. So what happens if a drive fails? What if it's a flash drive versus a HDD? Uh, what happens if you have a, you know, a SAN controller failure? Um, you've only got two controllers. Uh, if you have a three node HCI cluster, what happens if you lose one node and that hardware can't be replaced for three days due to hardware shortages? Uh, or what if there's a network connectivity fail? Uh, is that going to impact performance uh, front end and back end, or is it going to be sufficient? So I like to identify all these scenarios and go through them with the customers because for anyone who's ever tried to justify adding additional hardware for resiliency, <laughs> a lot of the time people go, oh, no, we don't need that. But I think when you lay it out with what the failure scenario is, what the risk is, and what the impact of that failure could be, or is likely to be, it's much more easy to justify. And I look at resiliency in IT sort of like if you're driving a car and you never have an accident and you're not wearing your seatbelt, well, you'd be okay. But what if you do have an accident and what if you're doing 60 miles an hour or 100 kilometers an hour uh, down the highway and a car hits you and you don't have a seatbelt? You know, the risk is maybe medium or even low that that will happen but if it does happen, it's a catastrophic issue. You could be killed in that scenario. So, you know, IT is the same. If you lose a drive, well, you may be fine. But if you can't rebuild and replace that drive in a timely manner, a subsequent failure could take you offline or it could degrade you to the point where you are effectively offline. Yeah, well, I think that's our job, really. I mean, if you tried to protect from absolutely every failure. I mean, you can do a great job as an architect um, coming up with a whole bunch of different scenarios where something goes wrong and thinking about what the impact would be. And I think our job is to guide customers through that decision process because, you know, 
maybe not all failure scenarios are important to them. Maybe they are willing to take the risk for some or all of their workloads. It's maybe it's not worth the extra dollars to buy, mm. you know, three redundant hosts in case one fails then they can do a rebuild. And then while they're doing the rebuild, they've got the extra capacity so that they can still continue to run um, at a high performance. You know, maybe, maybe some of their VMs are just not as important and they can shut them down and, uh, you know, continue working and it won't be great, but it's not worth 200 K um, extra to buy extra hosts just in case one day something like that happens. But the important thing is to uh, have that conversation. You don't, you definitely don't want to be having that conversation after the failure has occurred. It, it's definitely going to be before. That's what our job is to um, come up with these scenarios and, uh, you know, help make, help guide customers through those decisions. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's critical to inform the customer so they can make an informed decision. Um, and one way I like to do that is like a TCO. Here's the total cost of a solution. And also here is the cost of your outage. So let's say a customer has a certain amount of revenue per year. If they're offline for a day, you know, not that this is a exact measurement, but you could divide that annual revenue by days in the year. And you could say, well, this is roughly what you might earn in a year, in a day. If you're offline for a day, well, that's what you're going to potentially lose, um, assuming it's a, an online store and they lost sales or something like that. Um, and then there's the things that are more difficult to measure around like reputational damage and things like that, where a customer may be turned off using your product or service as a result of an outage um, and you might suffer an ongoing loss as opposed to a one-time loss. So that, that's kind of how I like to broach things with customers and let them know, look, here's the cost of adding another layer of resiliency, which makes your chance of, of those scenarios, you know, negligible um, and you've mitigated those significantly. So I think then it comes down to, you know, an executive decision as opposed to a technical engineer, because a technical engineer, as we've been in our past, will always have our, our technical hat on and we'll say, oh, we want everything. We want all the resiliency and we want the most performance. Yeah. And, but that's very rarely the uh, scenario in the real world that there's an unlimited budget to do whatever. Uh, but as long as people are informed and they understand the, the risk and the impact, uh, I think, yeah, it's ultimately up to the customer uh, what they want to invest uh, in whatever solution they are implementing. Yeah, I think uh, laying it out in that kind of TCO uh, metric that you mentioned is a, is a good way of doing it. Um, it's certainly a lot easier with a financial institution um, as well, because, you know, finance is everything to them. They, they know exactly what their revenue is per day, probably per minute. Um, and they also know the type of reputational damage that would occur if, for example, customers start calling because they would like to open a new account uh, and the call center's machines aren't working properly and so they can't open new accounts today. You know, that's, uh, uh, those are the types of things that are extremely important. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think ultimately as as vendors and as architects and anyone providing a product or a service to a customer, we should be effectively by default making sure our customers are protected. So for me personally, I, I like to design things by default to have, you know, at least a minimum level of resiliency so that an environment can rebuild in the event of a, of a common failure scenario. Um, I feel like that's the minimum level that I should recommend um, being responsible for architecture. And if a customer chooses to make a different decision, that, that's entirely fine. 
Uh, it's then my job to educate them on how to mitigate those additional risks that they might be choosing to take uh, by not implementing you know, a resilient solution or DR or you know, a certain uh, degree of backup and recovery and things like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that that's something that I was asking you about recently was um, with vSAN in particular, um, it seems as though by default, um, it's, it's not actually reserving capacity for resiliency in the way that um, you just described that you would like to do. So um, in a default scenario, if you just build vSAN and leave all the default settings, you may not have enough capacity to rebuild when one of your hosts fails. And I kind of, like you, think that the opposite should be true, which would be I want to turn off resiliency rather than have to understand what it means and then turn it on to make sure that I'm protected. Mm, yeah, that, that's certainly my opinion. I think protecting people by default, uh, I guess that's why your car will ding at you if you don't wear your seatbelt and if your door's not closed, you'll get a little warning light on your dashboard, uh, things like this. I, I feel the same is, is true for IT. And unfortunately, both the, the Nutanix and the vSAN offering uh, don't protect customers by default uh, by reserving that capacity. Uh, I certainly think it would be a great feature for those to be enabled by default and be optional to be turned off uh, for non-critical environments or test dev or things like that. Um, but certainly, I think that's why... As architects, we need to make sure people know that if you don't enable these settings, which is the host rebuild reserve um, for vSAN and the reserve uh, rebuild capacity on Nutanix, that you may well get in a scenario where you've filled beyond the threshold where you can recover from a failure and then tolerate a subsequent failure uh, or even tolerate a single failure uh, without yeah. a significant impact. So, yeah, that's what I like to uh, advise customers uh, out of the box, and I think sizing tools should uh, factor that in as well by default, uh, so that partners who may not have the experience um, will by default be protecting customers. Yeah, I guess that's a proper uh, product management decision somewhere to leave that disabled by default. And I, I imagine the discussion goes something like, "Well, we want the metric of raw capacity versus usable capacity to look good." Um, with our product and so that's why we have it disabled by default so it looks like when you buy you know x amount of disk capacity uh, your ratio is uh, is quite good compared to the usable amount of capacity that you get once you enable the product um, unfortunately that's i mean that's a metric but it's not the only metric that's important to business continuity Indeed. In fact, it's it's probably not very important to business continuity <laughs> no. at all. It's probably quite quite the no. opposite. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's certainly an interesting one, and I think that um, if we look at the pros and cons of of having that n plus one capacity or n plus two, if you're using failures to tolerate two or RF three in Nutanix talk, um, there's so many advantages to having that enabled, and the what the one disadvantage is you're paying a little bit more, you, you paid for an extra node. Uh, I guess you could argue you're, you're using a little bit more power in the data center. Uh, you might need a little yeah. bit more cooling as a result, um, a little bit more rack space. Like there are, you know, some other considerations. Um, but I think there's so much value in HCI technology that something like a, an, a cluster upgrade 
which is non-disruptive. Obviously, vMotion moves things around. The nodes can be upgraded and, and everything continues functioning. If you can't perform that function because you've overfilled your data store, I would think that's a, it's an enormous loss in value of that solution, um, not only in failure scenarios, but operationally, your staff are going to have to manage a very difficult scenario where they can't potentially patch the environment for security vulnerabilities. Um, they can't potentially upgrade to get new features uh, to improve performance or, or anything else. So maybe, maybe you can't run backups or maybe you have to turn virus scanning off or something like that. You know, it's, there's, a, yeah. there's a lot of things that, uh, that can be impacted if you don't have the right amount of performance. Absolutely. So I think the implications of not having N plus one, whether it's compute or whether it's the storage layer or both, I think are quite significant. Uh, and coming back to that point you, you rightly made is protecting by default is definitely the way I would prefer things to be done. And if people want to turn that off, they need to understand, they need to mitigate those risks, uh, both operationally and performance and you know, if your environment is, you know, has suffered a failure and you can't get replacement hardware in a timely manner for whatever reason, supply chain problem, data center access, um, resources like us to come and, you know, perform the, the required work, you are in a degraded at-risk state indefinitely until that task is completed. Um, so your chance of impact in terms of performance is almost guaranteed. You're almost guaranteed to have performance problems. Um, your chance of a subsequent failure causing you an outage uh, becomes much higher, uh, if not guaranteed. A subsequent failure where you only have N plus one, you know, you're, you're pretty much definitely going to have an outage. Uh, so I think the time to recover from that and the impact on the business is enormous compared to the cost of, of say, one node in, in the example of HCI. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Yeah. Quite an interesting topic, resiliency. I think we could talk all day actually about resiliency. Um, I think so. And then we could have a, a defense panel and uh, architectural decisions and justify them to each other and argue both sides as well. Yeah, we could. What, what is the argument the other way? It saves you some money on your CapEx, I guess. Um, yeah. That, that would be one. A um, little bit of power cooling and rack space. And uh, what, about the, what about the environment? Yeah, I mean, we don't want to... We don't want to be, in the case of Australia, burning extra coal to create the electricity <laughs> to run that extra host if we don't need it. Yeah, that's true. So there are there are some uh, implications there as well. So no, very cool topic. So what are you excited to do? You know, now moving forward with end to end, what are you most excited to uh, to progress your career into? Well. The there's a couple of areas. I mean, obviously, as I've mentioned, the, I get the most fulfillment from working closely with customers to solve their business problems. I mean, that's the hmm. number one thing that I'd like to do. So working closely with a customer to implement something like vSAN, that um, maybe gives them a cost advantage or gives them uh, an extra resiliency advantage over a previous solution or provides them a capability that they need for their business. Um, and then you know, going through the whole process from designing, delivering, implementing, and then helping them uh, operate that solution. That's um, the near-term goal. Uh, in the longer term, I, I'm interested in 
actually operating a data center. And so uh, whether that means providing uh, a managed vSAN service or um, HCI service for customers, um, or even uh, you know, pay-as-you-go type um, you know, VM, just a virtual machine service for customers. Um, I think that would be really interesting. And I think, I mean, really that's the way most infrastructure is going. Most customers want to move to the cloud. They don't want to be operating their own data centers. So um, certainly interested in looking at that um, in the future. Wow, you might have touched on and uh, pre-announced one of our future offerings. So there you go. Uh, for, for listeners, you, you may have a hint on uh, on what we're working on behind the scenes. Um, so, you know, on the same topic, uh, the multi-cloud solutions from VMware, uh, what are your thoughts on the hyperscaler and hypervisor model? Well, I think, uh, like I mentioned, a lot of customers don't want to be managing data centers anymore. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. One of them that I think about is flexibility in commercial real estate because um, a lot of commercial real estate isn't built to be a data center. So you have to make modifications. You know, you've got to run power. You've got to take care of cooling, all of that sort of stuff. And I think that if you separate your office space from your computing space, you've then greatly simplified your whole operation. So let's say you're coming to the end of your commercial lease um, and you're trying to negotiate terms on a new building. One of the things that makes you quite sticky at your current commercial location is your data center because it can't go down. It can't ever stop until you've got your new location where you can move all of your infrastructure and make, make sure your website's running and your, your people can work and save all your Word documents and everything else you're doing. So I think if you decouple your office space from your data center, then you're going to be in a much more flexible position to negotiate commercial leases and um, to move to different office spaces, resize, you know, maybe implement a greater work from home policy than you potentially had in the future, uh, in the past, sorry. Um, so I think those hyperscaler offerings are going to be really helpful for customers that want to do that. So next time, you know, if you're going to be migrating somewhere, instead of signing a new commercial lease and building a data center for yourself and uh, you know putting in a whole bunch of racks, cooling everything, why not migrate to a hyperscaler to basically the same infrastructure that you're already running, assuming that you are running uh, VMware or Nutanix or whatever it happens to be. Um, and then you've increased your flexibility as well uh, when it comes to where your office location is because now you don't have to worry about your data center. Somebody else is worrying about that now. And there's also potentially economies of scale there um, where some real estate that's designed specifically to be a data center is likely going to be put in a location that's good to be a data center rather than, you know, put in the corner of an office or a floor of an office building, which is actually more suited for people to live, not service. Um, so you're likely going to get uh, some cost benefits there as well, even if it's not immediately apparent. Yeah, absolutely. I think you touched on a, a bunch of really good things there. So, you know, one of them that I think a lot of architects um, will neglect in their architecture is they will neglect the enterprise architecture side or the more commercial business side of architecture, um, and they'll focus purely on the technical. So you just covered off probably 50% of what you talked about there, at least, was non-technical considerations. They were more commercial considerations, 
uh, giving customers flexibility on where they're going to move their office um, by choosing a technical solution which is not constrained to their premises. Uh, so I think that's a great example for all our listeners in when you get someone like James as a VCDX, this is what they will consider in addition to just the resiliency of a technical solution or a HCI vendor uh, is just simple things like the location. Um, you will avoid uh, scenarios where a simple leak in the roof will cause you a flooded data center to your example, actually much earlier in this podcast. So I think, yeah, that's uh, an area which is often neglected in IT and, and something James has just hit the nail on the head. So, yeah, thanks for that point, James. You bet. Yeah, so I think that's, again, coming back to end-to-end, -end, uh, that's what we're trying to deliver to customers is making sure that we're not just providing great technical outcomes, but we're providing business outcomes and linking the two together so it's measurable at a, at a C level uh, or even a board level. Uh, making sure they understand the value uh, in IT. Certainly. And um, obviously that's good for customers, but it's also good for us as people because that's the most fulfillment that you get out of doing your work. At least that's, that's how it is for me anyway, knowing that you've achieved a successful outcome. Sure, it's cool to play with technology, um, but, you know, that's only, uh, that's only part of the story. You need that technology to perform an outcome for it to be worthwhile. Yeah, exactly right. So it's got to be measurable. So understanding what the success criteria is, um, both from a business and technical level, having something which is measurable and you can sign off, um, both at a business level and a technical level. Um, and something I, I think is often neglected is what we refer to as operational verification, which is basically a fancy name for a test plan. But you might have, say, a VCDX uh, like one of us might design the environment. We might hand that off to another partner or another member of the team to implement. But then coming back, we're going to perform that operational verification against that checklist done by the architect so that we know it's implemented correctly. And then day two operations or day 365, that same test plan, which is a, a growing living document, can be reused in 12 months' time or two years' time after changes, upgrades, maintenance, whatever, to make sure that the environment is still at that minimally viable level that we've designed to originally. And I think that's an area where, you know, most VCDX or pretty much every VCDX I've ever talked to identifies as a gap. It's just not done very often. Even, you know, VMware PSO, there's some amazing architects at, at VMware over the years, uh, including yourself, who were put in a position where they've got a fixed amount of time to do something and you, you do the best you can within that constrained period. Um, but that also means that customers may be not getting the full benefit of someone like your experience because it's constrained to a, a fixed price engagement and it's really kind of focused on the initial implementation as opposed to the entire life cycle uh, of that solution. So I think that's, that's yeah. where we really want to focus is helping customers end-to-end, -end, of course, is a customer is the company name, but that's what we want to do is we want to provide something from the first meeting with the customer talking about a concept to the end of that, the life of that solution, and then obviously to replace that uh, over time. So I think that's uh, the most satisfying thing for me is coming back after three or five years and the environment is still largely working as it was designed to, and it might have scaled or it might have added a few things over the years, but ultimately it's actually delivered over a long period of time 
the goals we set out to and, and seeing how those decisions we made years ago have actually eventuated. Yeah, certainly. I would agree. No, very good. Well, we have to wrap up for today. Uh, so this is going to be part one of the podcast with James and I. Uh, we're a little time constrained, so we're going to wrap up uh, part one uh, now. But for those listening, you can look forward to uh, part two uh, of James and I uh, coming soon. So thank you, as always, James, for your time and look forward right. to uh, recording part two in the not-too-distant Thanks, Thank James. you, Josh.